All right, friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're uh, continuing our, our study through this very uh, heavy at times and very probing letter of Peter. Uh, and I'm just going to get right to it. The main point of our passage today is that a mature Christian suffers like Jesus. Remember what I said last week is that a mature Christian desires the good, is zealous for the good like Jesus. Well, we see here in our chapter that a mature Christian suffers like Jesus. That's our main point. And uh, Jesus is both our Savior and our example for how we ought to live our lives. And if we really believe the Bible, then we have to reckon with the calling to suffer for those who believe. I mean, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross. So at the very beginning of our lives, we are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. And that is, after all, what our Savior went through, isn't it? So there are two points to get at this main point. Again, the main point is a mature Christian suffers like Jesus. But the two points for our message today are this. The communion of suffering is point number one. And then the response to suffering. The communion of suffering and the response to suffering. So I'm just going to read the whole uh, chapter of 1 Peter, and then we're going to get right into our message. Peter writes this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves with the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The communion of suffering, point number one. And you see this. There are three paragraphs here, quite honestly. And in the first and the third paragraph, you see this point of the communion of suffering. And obviously, I'm using those words very specifically. The communion of suffering. And you see that in verses 1 through 6 and verses 12 through 19. So it's like a sandwich. Suffering. Right there. And I did a word search on this word suffering, pathos. In some, uh, just, that's... Funny Greek word, uh, the, the, the suffering, and it's shocking, honestly, to see. And I wish I had a little chart here to show you, um, but I'm not really into charts as it relates to preaching so much. But the word suffering appears in Peter's, this first letter, ten times more than it appears in any other book. Any other book. And, and so we see this word suffering come up again and again. And it's been the theme throughout 1 Peter as he's been talking to the church that's been spread out throughout the Roman Empire under the reign of Nero. And they are quite literally suffering. Their blood is being spilled and they are dying for their faith. And they are hunkered down trying to make it through a very difficult situation. And they're reminded, as we should be reminded of Jesus' words, blessed are you when you are persecuted and reviled, when others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my name? What does he say? Rejoice and be glad. Because they did that to the prophets. Blessed are you. And we see that here, that Peter's picking on that. If you are insulted, verse 11, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. People make fun of you. You're blessed. You are happy. You are joyful. But uh, this idea of persecution, of suffering because people are hurting you quite physically and emotionally, that's one category of suffering, and it's true. But in this particular chapter, Peter broadens that understanding of what suffering is. He broadens it to, to mean that something greater than just physical pain and suffering. It's also translated as passions. Passions. And that's where we get the term the passion of the Christ, the suffering of the Christ. So that's, that's one level of it. But, but this word of pathos means something broader than just mere physical pain or emotional pain and suffering like that. It, it draws on the passions of what we're passionate about, what we're running after. And it, uh, in this, this understanding... Is is what Paul? Or I'm sorry. Yeah, what Paul is talking about in his first letter to the Thessalonians. I'm just going to read that here, but it gets at the same idea of what Peter is getting at in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three. Paul says this to that church. He says, "For this is the will of God, your sanctification." Remember, we've talked about what sanctification is and what the pursuit of holiness is as priests of God. So he's writing to this church, and he says, "For this is the will of God, your sanctification." And how does he def- define sanctification? That you abstain from sexual immorality. This is. Does it sound like Peter? It should. These things are dovetailing together. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. 
Not in the passion of lust. That's the same word. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do who don't know God. See, this is the same concept that we see in the first two verses of our passage in chapter 4. See, in the previous paragraphs, we see, Since therefore Christ also suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so in the previous paragraph, Peter reminds us in chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And that's the desire that Peter has for you and for me, is that we live our lives in the spirit. That we don't live to gratify the passions of the flesh like the Gentiles do, but that we live a different way. We suffer in a different way. We have different pathos, different passions now. Because Jesus suffered, and because we have been brought to God, I want you to catch this, we live differently. We don't live like we once were. I ain't who I once was. Right? We live differently because he suffered once for sins, to forgive us, to pour out his blood, to bring us as an offering to God. And that's what this curious phrase, if you may have wondered what it is, and there's been debate about it, and so I just want to kind of lay out uh, what, what I think this, this, this uh, verse means here. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about you and me. He's talking about you and me. If you follow Jesus, you have ceased to be governed by the law of sin and death. You are now governed by the law of the Spirit that he, should, that he talked about in the previous chapter. And it, notice it doesn't say he has ceased from sinning. It's quite, quite, quite technically here is that this dominion of sin, we don't sin anymore. We ceased from that dominion of darkness and we've come into the kingdom of the marvelous light of Jesus. So we are no longer living as Gentiles as we once did. But now we live a different life. Governed by the Spirit of God. And it draws a, a line between a life lived for the flesh, which is sin, and a life lived for the Spirit. But maybe I can get at this a little bit more near and dear to you. Is that I remember there were distinct times when I was in college. I first started walking with the Lord uh, right before college. Uh, was kind of curious as to what that all meant. But I was starting to really take my faith seriously in college. And I remember many Friday nights, spending time with folks and praying together and then wondering, man, I'd like to go go partying. You know, I'd like to go do that. It looks like everybody's having a great time and I was tired of being left out. And I saw that those who went partying and didn't remember what they were doing the next day, they they seemed to have a pretty good life. I, I remember that I was like Asaph. In Psalm 73, where he looks at the wicked, he says, they don't have a care in the world. In fact, they're doing pretty well. And I remember so many distinct times, and maybe you can remember those times, and maybe you're having those times right now. You're like, man, it'd be so much easier not to be a Christian. And I promise you, it would be. It would be a whole lot easier to not be a Christian. The narrow path is hard. The broad path is easy. Have you ever felt like that? 
Because a, a call to follow Christ is a call to suffer. And it's not just this physical malignment or, or, or pain that others might give you. Because sometimes you can feel like, you, you can read that and you're like, man, I'm, I'm here in North America and I'm not really suffering because of my faith. Well, you are in some ways. And in fact, I think that's going to probably grow over the next uh, several years. Is that to be a Christian is not going to be as uh, cool as it used to be. <laughs> That's probably a very good thing, honestly. But what Peter has in mind here is to broaden that out to say, when you deny the flesh, you're suffering. It's easier to say yes. There will be battles in your soul to take the path of comfort and ease. To take the broad path that is traveled by myriads and myriads of people. And instead of saying no to godliness and every worldly lust, like our church membership covenant says, instead of saying no to ungodliness and every worldly lust, we'll want to indulge, indulge the passions of the flesh. We'll, uh, we'll want to just run away with what we want to do and not constrain ourselves anymore by trying to, to live the life that God has called us to live. And, and that's why we make a covenant with one another as a church. That's why we commit to each other before that opportunity presents itself. We actually say, no, no, I have decided I don't want to live like that. So I'm asking all of y'all to hold me accountable to that. I'm covenanting with you because I know my own heart that given a choice, I'll run after that. I'll want to live like a Gentile does who doesn't know God instead of living like those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus in that moment. So right now, before that moment comes, I want to commit to other people to live differently. So that's why we covenant with each other, because the path is difficult. The suffering is great, because there's turmoil in our own hearts that we want to run after and be our, the arbiters of what's good and what's true in our lives. And there's also constraints on the outside that are pushing for us to conform to the lust of the flesh. Look at the verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised. They are taken aback when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. My friends, there is a flood of debauchery and God is calling you to swim against that stream. To live a different life and to say, throw it, bring it on. And I'm going to keep swimming against this tide because righteousness is calling me to a greater calling. Hmm. See, suffering comes as a result of not giving in to the desires of the flesh. You're going to be made fun of because they're surprised that you don't fall into that same flood. That you're not swept away by your own passion. But that you're fighting against it. Man, just come on. Just join us, man. Why you got to be such a square? You think you're better than us? Have you ever heard that? I have. It's not that I think I'm better than anybody else. In fact, I know that I'm worse. So, my friends, we have to recalibrate, as Peter does for us. We have to recalibrate what we think of when we think of suffering because our passions are reconfigured to center around Jesus. Did you catch it? We have to reconfigure that my life is now called to be a life of denial. Denying myself, denying those passions. Because when we suffer, we actually commune with God. The suffering one. 
When we choose to live for Jesus, we draw sharp and bright lines in the ground of what we will and what we will not do. And as a result, we suffer. We suffer. So to decide, let me just put it this way, to decide is to literally kill all other options in your life. The same place we get the word suicide, to kill oneself, decide is to kill off all other options. That's where that word originally comes from. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. I have decided. You will ridicule me. You will make fun of me. I will not want to, on my worst days, want to follow Jesus. But I have decided. I have killed off any other option. I have burned the ships. And I am running hard and fast to Jesus. No turning back. And yes, it will cause inner turmoil and doubt in your own heart. Maybe I shouldn't have burned that one. Maybe I should have just left a little little, uh, dinghy boat. Just in case. Nope, burn them all. Cut the ties. Live a life that is cut off from all other options to run after Jesus. It's important for us to recalibrate this view of suffering. Look at the paragraph in verse 13. Just like I said, it's a sandwich. So we looked at the first paragraph. Look at the, the third paragraph. But rejoice insofar as you share That word literally is koinonia, is fellowship. As you share in Christ's sufferings, as you fellowship with Him. And that's what Paul was saying, oh, that I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. He says, I want to commune with Jesus Himself. Why? That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That you don't see it right now, that faith is the evidence of things unseen. And you know that one day His glory will be revealed. And all of those sacrifices, all of those decisions, all of that cutting off will be, have, will be worth it. Will be worth it. You can't serve two masters, is what Jesus said. You'll either love the one and hate the other. You can't serve God and the world. So, how are we to respond to this suffering? When ridicule from without comes and when turmoil from within starts to disintegrate our inner souls, what do we do? That's our second point. This is a response to suffering, verses 7 through 11. And see, I'm I'm not going to read that, but here we see a series of commands that Peter gives us. We see a series of commands for righteousness' sake. This is how we are to live and respond to that suffering that is presented in the world to us. To silence the fools who don't know God that we looked at previously. And so they'll see our good works and give glory to God on the day of visitation when he returns in glory. But I want to focus on only one of these commands today. I want to focus on one of these commands because all of these commands really orbit around verse 10. Let me just read it to give us context. As each has received a gift, you've received a gift. You've received a gift from God, at least one, a spiritual gift. As each has received a gift from God, use it 
Don't put it under a bushel. Use it to serve one another. That's the point you've been given a gift for. is for other people, not for yourself. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each one of us is different. Each one of us has different gifts. And why? Because it is a beautiful tapestry. It's a beautiful tapestry when everybody is on board together. And everybody is doing the work of a priest. But this is the one thing I want to focus on. And and I think it, it bleeds into every single one of these other commands. This is why I'm hitting on it. Is this issue of hospitality. Is the issue of hospitality. In the South, we uh, too often believe that hospitality means making sure the sweet tea is filled to the brim. Making sure the house is clean, that there's no dust. You go around, make sure there's no dust. Make sure all the clothes are put away. Those are good things to do. I mean, but that's not what the Bible calls hospitality. Biblically, hospitality has a much, much richer meaning than that. It's literally two words put together. To love the stranger. To love the stranger. That's hospitality. Biblically speaking, hospitality is serving those you don't know. You don't know. Like you know them, but you don't know them. (laughs) It's to love a stranger. And historically speaking, that's where hospitals came from. Because Christians took care of the spiritual and physical needs of strangers. And so hospitals... Sprouted up. Hospitality was found there. That that those who had wounds came and had them healed. Those who were struggling with depression and sadness, they came and were listened to and they were loved. See, I want us so much as a church to expand our understanding of hospitality to be more holistic. To not think that when I say the word hospitality, I'm talking about southern hospitality. There's nice things about it. I love sweet tea. I love it to be filled up. I love eating off of fine china. Yeah, there's good things about it, but that is not the sum and substance of biblical hospitality. It's more than a good meal. It's more than serving in a freshly cleaned house. I want us to view welcoming people, all people, into our lives in a much more gospel-purposed way. As Rosaria Butterfield, I have the book here, has written in her excellent book, I would highly commend this to you. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Excellent, excellent, excellent book. And in this book, Rosaria talks about this issue of hospitality. She opens her book by saying this, Radically ordinary hospitality, those who live it, see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They know they are like meth addicts. They know that they are like sex trade workers. And they take their own sin seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use the Bible as a lifeline. With no exceptions. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. See, one of the hindrances that you and I have towards biblical hospitality, let's just be really honest here, 
There's two hindrances that I see in my own life and, and in our lives as Christians. Uh, we actually, um, I actually just finished up a, a great discipleship group. So I'm going to get to those conflicts here in a moment. It's a little teaser there. But I just finished up an eight-week discipleship group with a bunch of guys that I've grown to love and I'm thankful for them. And if you're curious about it, you can ask Aaron, Evan, Jesse, Leonard, and Tyler about it. But in that book, one of the things we did was we read a book together. And the book was Henry Nouwen's Reaching Out. And you can ask him. Each one of them loved it. It was very, very challenging. And he talks about this issue of hospitality. And he divides it out into two hindrances to why we don't, why we aren't hospitable to other people. And again, I'm talking about broadly hospitable, welcoming people into our lives. For one, there's a conflict of being full. A conflict of being full. That is, our calendars are too full. Our clocks are. Our watches are too full. We don't have room in our lives for other people to inhabit that space in our lives. We would love to have them over for dinner. We would love to go with them somewhere. But we just don't have time. Because we are too full. We are too full. And he writes this. Hospitality, biblical hospitality, means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become friend Instead of an enemy. So we can see that creating space is far from easy in our occupied and preoccupied society. And still, if we expect any salvation, redemption, healing, and new life, the first thing we need is an open, receptive place where something can happen to us. Yes, he said something to us. Because when we are hospitable to other people, something divine happens to us. When we welcome them, when we create the space in our lives. And so we must make space in our lives, Redeemer. We must make space in our lives. And I hope this isn't just words in the air. We have to make space in our lives. What an amazing church it would be to be a part of if all of us did an inventory of our calendars like I talked about last week. Scratched out every Wednesday. I'm just throwing a day out there. What if every single one of us in the church scratched out Wednesday and said, that's the day that I'm having somebody over. Whether it's somebody in the church or somebody that I don't know out in in my neighborhood. But every Wednesday you can know that I'm welcoming somebody into my life. And I'm, I'm creating space so that God can do something to me. So that God can free me. So that God can show me more of himself. It's not yet a part of our culture. Let me be really honest. This kind of hospitality is not yet, but I believe it will be if we can grasp the whole of this. It's not yet a part of our culture at Redeemer. We want it to be. We, we, we all want it to be. I know we do because I hear us talk about it. But we have to do the hard work of scratching out our calendar and making it happen. It's not just going to happen because we want it to. It's going to happen because we make it happen. We scratch it out and we say, that's the day. Wednesday night. Every Wednesday. Or at least start with once a month. But welcoming other people in the church into your home. Welcoming strangers into your lives. But then there's a second a second hindrance, a second conflict. So we have the full schedule problem. But then we have this second issue, this second conflict that, that Nowen brings up. And this is a conflict of being empty. So con- conflict of being full, a conflict of being empty. And that's an emptiness on the inside. 
He says that we have to move from a place where we are seeking other people to fill our needs to a place where we seek to meet other people's needs. True Christian maturity moves from what I want and need to what you need, to what others need. It is inherently, to be a mature Christian is inherently to look to the needs of others. Truly mature Christians have grown out of the adolescence of staring at the mirror and seeing every pimple on their face to a grown, mature adult who runs freely and knows that they don't look all that nice, but they're still going to get on their knee and wash feet. That's a truly mature Christian. It's not someone who's so absorbed with all of their faults and failures, but someone who says, "Who, who can I serve? How can I use my gifts for someone else? Let me just say this. If you have a place that you call home, you have a mighty tool for the kingdom of God. If you have a place you call home, you have a mighty tool for the kingdom of God. Families, you may say, I'm too busy with kids' activities. Start cutting. Newlyweds, you may say, we don't have a big enough space to invite anybody in. I promise you, it would be really Awesome to be cramped in with other people. College students, you may say, I don't have enough money for a meal. Invite somebody over for coffee or water or ramen noodles. It does not matter. You have a place to be used as a tool. And empty nesters, you may be thinking in the back of your mind, those college students don't really want to hang out with me. I'm not cool enough. Well, I promise you, when I was in college, and I know that this is the testament of the college students that are in our church, that they would love to hang out with empty nesters. I promise you that. And I can hear an amen through the television. (laughs) You have a home. You have a place that is a tool. If you have a gift, which you do, that gift was given to you for the service of others. To freely give. To freely give. Rosaria concludes her book with this beautiful picture that I long for us as a church to be about. She says this. Imagine a world where every Christian practiced radically ordinary hospitality as either a host or a guest. Imagine a world where every Christian made a covenant of church membership and honored it. Imagine a world where neighbors said that Christians throw the best parties in town and are the go-to people for big problems and issues. Imagine if the children in the neighborhood knew that the Christians were safe people to ask for help when unthinkable agony canvassed their private or family lives. Imagine a world where no one languishes in crushing loneliness Where no abused woman or man or child suffers alone. Where people take their real and pressing problems to Christians who have the reputation of being helpers. And where victims are not swept away, lost, or forgotten. Imagine a world where people fear God more than men and serve God more than comfort. Imagine a world where the power of the gospel to change lives is ours to behold. What a beautiful picture where we open up our homes and we open up our lives to each other, to other church members and to strangers. 
And instead of guarding our words or always offering our opinion, we create space in our hearts for others to other for others to challenge us. That we don't have it all together and we don't know all the right answers. That's a beautiful place to be where we create that space where the stranger and the other person goes from being an unknown to someone who is cherished. Are you welcoming others into your life? You may be a welcoming person. I'm not saying that. But let's do a hard inventory of our lives. And see if our habits and our daily routines are so crowded with activity that we don't have space in our calendar for others. That we don't, as Jesus said, that we have not chosen the better thing. But that we are frantic with activity when the better thing is to sit and to welcome. To welcome the stranger because when you welcome the stranger, you have welcomed me is what Jesus said. We have to make that space practically in our lives, on our calendars, to actually be hospitable. We can't say I'm hospitable just because we like to be hospitable, but hospitable because you actually are hospitable. We have to take the time to call each other, to text each other, but we have to take the time to scratch out the calendar and say this is much more vital, life-giving, than all of those other activities. I promise you, I promise you, if you welcome your kids into that activity, it can be life-giving. Because at the day's end, friends, when we sacrifice for others, we are fellowshipping with God. You see, the last verse of our chapter, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the very same thing that Peter said about Jesus in chapter 2, is that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so when we are suffering, when we say, no, it's not convenient, but I will deny that comfort for others. When you do that, you are entrusting your soul to a faithful creator. We entrust ourselves to a faithful creator because we aren't looking for other people to fulfill us, to meet our needs. But because we're already so full of the love and mercy and grace of God, we are able to pour it out into other people's lives. That's my prayer for us as a church. That's my prayer for us is that we would be known to be hospitable. That we would be the kind of people who take this teaching seriously and mark it out. It's going to, it's going to be painful. It's going to be a decision. To decide to cut off all those other options and to follow after Jesus with what he's made clear in his word. Will you do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, each of us can see our shortcomings in so many ways. And yet you are a gracious, welcoming God. Who says to each one of us, come to me. I love you. I am merciful. I am not chastising you, but I am showing you a better way to live your lives. Oh, God, would you give us by your spirit the ability to see that this is the better way to live our lives for others. Not so intent on ourselves and our shortcomings and that we don't know how to cook a good casserole or whatever it is. That we don't know the right words to say. That we're afraid that somebody's going to ask us a question that we don't know the answer to. Whatever it is, help us not to be so full of ourselves that we can't serve others. 
And God, would you make our church, Christ the Redeemer Church, the kind of people who love each other and who love the stranger as you have loved us and you have called us your own. We pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.